0: You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging.
1: So the story begins in 2015 in Vermont. Um, It was when I was in my early 20s and my mother, my sister and I decided to hike Vermont's Long Trail, which it's 273 miles and traverses the entire kind of spine of vermont from all the way from massachusetts up to the border of canada and it takes about 3 or 4 weeks to complete to complete so i'd always liked spending time outside uh when i was younger we i grew up in the adirondack mountains of new york so my family would frequently go out and go hiking but i had never really spent that much consecutive time in the wilderness before And so day in and day out, we were just kind of in the woods with whatever was being thrown at us, the weather, kind of whatever people we met, just whatever the trail was doing, if it was going up or down. Um, And by the end of the trip, something that I noticed is that I felt like my mind had noticeably shifted. I felt like I was able to focus on things better and almost follow thoughts to the end of their natural progression. And that was kind of the catalyst. I'm wondering if other people feel this way and if nature changes us cognitively. So uh, I started doing some research and found out that there were a few studies out there that suggested that spending time in nature improved various cognitive abilities, but really not that much at the time. Um, and so I did, though, find one lab in the Cognition and neural sciences at the University of Utah headed by Dr. David Strayer that was interested in understanding more about how nature can influence cognition and change the brain. And so it was around that time that I was kind of between post-college and I ended up applying for a PhD in that lab and was accepted. And so I did my PhD there and then fast forward to the summer of 2022 Um, So seven years later, obviously there's been a lot that's happened kind of in the world, (laughs) but also in in the kind of subfield of nature and human health. So we now have pretty strong evidence at this point that nature improves various attentional abilities and cognitive control abilities. And in my own work, we find that spending time in nature changes brain activity even. So we have learned a lot. But also in my own personal life, there was a lot going on. So I finished my PhD on this topic and was starting my position here at CSU. Um, I also unfortunately lost my grandmother, my mother's mother, to Alzheimer's disease at this point after several several years of kind of battling the disease. Um, and the last was really upsetting to our family, obviously, especially to my mother, And I found myself once again planning a really long hike, this time on the John Muir Trail in California with my mother, um, which is a 211-mile trail. And just we did that before I began my position at CSU. Hi,
0: everyone. Hannah here. I'm going to pause Sarah's story to go ahead and introduce today's topic As you can probably gather, Sarah LaTemplio is here today to speak with us about the impacts of nature on cognitive health. Dr. LaTemplio is a new assistant professor in CSU's Human Dimensions of Natural Resources department. And as a cognitive scientist, she uses a variety of behavioral measures, as well as physiological techniques like EKGs and EEGs to examine people's heart rates and brain waves when they're interacting with nature. Today, we're discussing the restorative effects of natural environments on the brain and Dr. Latemplio's preliminary ideas on how interactions with nature might slow cognitive decline in older adults. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. Now, back to the story. Sarah left us off with a hike on the John Muir Trail in California in summer 2022, right after her family lost her grandmother to Alzheimer's disease.
1: And so, yep, at this point... Uh, I'm now a scientist, research scientist, and I have to admit, like, I'm feeling a little bit skeptical of the experience that I had seven years ago. I'm starting to think of kind of all of these confounding variables that could have explained away the experience that I had. Um, And I'm aware that there's scientific evidence that spending time in nature can improve cognition and reduce stress. But I'm also at this point aware that there's a lot of other things that can psychologically be going on when you go on a big trip like that. However, also at this point, I just finished my dissertation uh, and was feeling pretty cognitively depleted. <laughs> so that's kind of the mindset that I entered this second long hike with was just feeling really, really tired um, and having a hard time kind of focusing in on things after, after finishing this degree. And just uh, kind of to my surprise, if I'm being honest, yet again, uh, after completing this hike, I did feel like there is this mental fog that kind of slowly lifted from my brain, just like the first time. Another thing that happened on that hike, too, though, that was different this time was that I was doing it with my mom. And we also talked a lot, given what had happened, about Alzheimer's and cognitive aging. And so for probably most people that study cognitive aging, uh, it's not something that we just study. It's also often something personal. Just with the sheer prevalence of Alzheimer's, probably most people know someone that has been diagnosed. And there are some genetic predispositions to Alzheimer's um, and risks for women in particular. And that threat kind of looms for my family as it does for many others. And as I was walking up and down the mountains and starting to kind of feel like I was able to pay better attention to things again, I started wondering if what we were doing at that very moment might also be helping to prevent this other big threat, which is Alzheimer's disease. After all, there's all this research in younger adults that spending time in nature improves attention and cognitive control. And these are two of the first abilities that are affected by cognitive aging, but yet there is very, very little existing research on that topic specifically.
0: So I'll leave us on a cliffhanger for a second. I wonder if you can take us through how this topic has been viewed historically. Like what research is out there? What evidence currently exists for how being outdoors, being in nature affects your cognitive health?
1: Yeah, yeah. So there is a really long human history of using nature as a a vehicle for human health. And I should just start by saying that I think that indigenous cultures around the world have known about this for a really long time, particularly here in what's now the United States. Um, and so really Western science is kind of just catching up to these indigenous ways of knowing and connecting to the, uh, to nature and to the environment. Um, but even in the United States, historically, um, back when there were really big tuberculosis outbreaks oftentimes they would send patients out here to colorado and up to the adirondack mountains where i'm from as kind of a last ditch effort to cure people because they thought that spending time in nature might have some health benefits that might um, prolong people's lifespans when they were really sick so there's been a really long history of people using nature as a way to improve their mental and physical health. But I would say it's been only really recently that scientists have started to kind of examine this using, using our methodologies. And really I think most of our scientific evidence kind of comes from these two theories that emerged around the eighties and nineties. So attention restoration theory and stress recovery theory, which basically state, uh, The first one, attention restoration theory, states that spending time in nature improves attention because nature has all of these properties that are naturally kind of good at uh, promoting people to uh, to pay attention. (laughs) Uh, And stress recovery theory just kind of as it suggests, suggests that people are better able to kind of adapt and respond to stressors when they're out in nature And so those are kind of the two main historical theories that have guided a lot of the work. Um, But back when they were written, there was really not much scientific evidence supporting them. And I would say um, it's not really been until the past 20 and really the past 10 years that we've seen this accumulation of evidence supporting those two theories.
0: Yeah. So... What are some of the methodologies that are being used now, and and what are some of the things that you're finding?
1: Yes, that's a great question. Um, So we kind of find that a lot of researchers kind of either use the attention restoration framework or the stress recovery framework. So the folks that are interested in attention restoration are often kind of using cognitive tests really they're trying to see if people are better at paying attention to things if people remember things better um if people you know i think i've even seen studies if people are better at proofreading in nature um versus stress recovery is really kind of focused on stress physiology mm-hmm. so those researchers often employ um Like electrocardiogram ECG. So they're looking at heart rate, heart rate variability. They're looking at blood pressure. They're looking at uh, cortisol, which is a stress hormone, um, as well as kind of just self-reports of mood and stress and things like that.
0: Yeah. So if I had to venture... You know, I'd imagine some of these studies are set up as like somebody's super stressed out and then they go spend some time outside and then they come back in that you monitor them like a pre
1: and post nature intervention. Does that sound kind of right? Yes. Yep. Most of the studies are what we would call kind of a randomized control design. And so you test people ideally before they go out on some sort of nature experience and then you test them either during or after that nature experience, and then you have a control condition where um, ideally you're sending out those same participants to a different environment. Um, Most people use city environments as the quote-unquote control condition, but it's really actually quite hard to design a control for nature uh, because we don't really know what the secret sauce is, so to speak. We don't know if it's just something about being outdoors. We don't know if it is looking at trees. We don't know if it's the noise. And so that has been one aspect that's been really challenging of the research. But I would say that's at least the most common is to just, if you have somebody doing a nature walk, you have them also walk around a city block as well.
0: Yeah. I imagine it's hard too because We try, like, even if you live in a city environment, there are ways to find the outdoors, quote unquote. Like, even just, like, walking in an urban garden can probably simulate the feeling of what it's like to actually be in the woods, you know?
1: Yeah. Yep. And we don't really have a great idea of how those differences might play out with some of the outcome measures that we're looking at.
0: Got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, again, if I had to venture and, like, take a guess as to why... There have been a, what is the secret sauce? Like you're saying, I would say something like you're disconnected from the rest of the world. You're often not looking at your phones. You're in more peace and quiet when you're outside. Um, it is that feeling of just unplugging as opposed to -to day-to-day life where we've got, you know, work and screens in our faces and something like that.
1: Yeah. So attention restoration theory would actually say that that's a really important component of what's going on is the reduction of demands on your attention, essentially. So like what you're describing in your everyday life, when you may be in a more urbanized environment, maybe just getting to work, you're having to pay attention to all the cars on the road, you're having to Make sure that you are paying attention when you cross the street, that a car doesn't hit you, your phone is vibrating in your pocket, people are emailing you. There's a lot of demands on your attention that at least the theory argues are not inherently present when we're out in some of these more natural spaces. Got it.
0: Okay. So you come to CSU, you get this job position you want to get back. Now you're in a human dimensions of natural resources department. So a great place to study this. What what are some of the goals that you're setting out with? I know this is your first year as an assistant professor. So this is my first yeah. year.
1: Yeah, I would say I think two of the major directions that I'm taking my lab in. One is trying to get at some of these questions that you and I have been talking about, about, you know, is it this environment better than that one? Or how long should we be spending in nature? Um, so I'm working with a colleague, also in Human Dimensions of Natural Resource, and a couple other colleagues across campus and the CSU system, to put in a grant with the SPUR Center, where we're hopefully going to do two things. Um, we are going to be actually kind of training some of the practitioners, as we call them, the people that are already taking people out into nature on trips through various organizations, and how they can collect data. Um, and first of all, hopefully we've been hearing from a lot of our practitioner partners that that in itself is very useful for them because they can understand more about their own programming. But if we compile all that data from all of the practitioners, it's also useful for scientists to try to be able to answer some of those hard to answer questions. So I can't go out and collect cognitive data on, you know, this trip that is, in the ocean in California or near the ocean and then this trip that's in the Rocky Mountains and then one that's in this urban park in St. Louis. I can't go out and do all of that and neither can my lab, but there are people that are already doing all those things in their everyday kind of professions and they can collect that data. Um, So that's the goal is to just kind of create almost this programming that will do that with that grant. That's one major direction that we're going in. The second direction, which we'll probably be getting into quite a bit more, is I want to understand more about if spending time in nature can promote healthy aging. Um, That's one demographic that I've realized throughout my work is really underexplored um, and potentially might benefit the most from nature interventions. Yeah yeah
0: a couple things from what you just said the first point with your grant your proposal for the spur campus brings up the value of citizen science Mm -hmm. (laughs) and like you said with practitioner providers as you call them I'm thinking of like field guides and people who lead hikes or the certified like forest therapist or ecotherapist those kinds of interesting career paths that we're seeing these days and Oftentimes, those people have already had some kind of training and data in that in some way Mm -hmm. and gathering those data. And so I think that's just a really interesting avenue that can be taken is just having everyday people who were were planning to go for a hike anyway, Mm -hmm. then being able to collect data that could benefit research.
1: Yeah, exactly. And we're, yeah, we're really hoping that it's something that can be useful for everyone involved. Um, So useful for our practitioner partners that, you know, might want to understand more about what's going on with their own programming. And then obviously incredibly useful for scientists that are interested in answering some of these questions.
0: Yeah, definitely. And then the second part, wanting to see how nature can affect healthy aging. So I know you said it's an underexplored field, but I wonder... Can you, knowing what you know, can you make any hypotheses about how do you think being outdoors might affect an aging population? Um, Do these trends that you've talked about in younger adults outside, do you think they'll transfer over to an older adult population?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And I think we don't know the answer to that yet, because as I said, it's been pretty underexplored. But that being said, we are pretty sure now at this point there have been some pretty big meta-analyses, which is kind of this big study that we do that examines the strength of evidence of everything that's ever been published. So we have these big meta-analyses that show improvements in attention and cognitive control in younger adults. And we also know that um, we, we can improve these abilities in older adults who tend to kind of suffer from declines in these abilities, oftentimes that predate Alzheimer's diagnoses. Um, So theoretically, uh, they should transfer to older adults and potentially may even be more powerful in older adults. But we don't really know that for sure, because there hasn't really been research on it. The The other side of that, I think we've talked a little bit about how there's a lot of evidence that nature reduces stress and improves mental health in younger adults. Again, there have been multiple multiple meta-analyses on that topic. And uh, I think what's less known about aging is that stress and adversity can really negatively impact cognitive aging and healthy aging. So uh, we think that if nature is also reducing stress and improving mental health, those also might be things that are really beneficial to older adults as well.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking of a number of our faculty affiliates and just some various research that we have going on at the center and I know for instance Dr. Aga Berzynska, her whole area of research is how how do li- what kind of lifestyle modifications can you make to improve healthy brain aging. And one of her big areas that she looks at is physical activity Mm -hmm. um, and various types of exercise like dancing versus walking versus stretching. And so already just knowing that the American Heart Association and these societies that we have in the U.S. would recommend people the baseline is 150 minutes of exercise per week. Um, So even just knowing that as a baseline, that's one of the factors that I'm sure when you're going outside and spending time in nature, that could improve healthy aging. Yeah. Just the exercise component alone.
1: Absolutely. And I think there's been a lot of interest in whether or not green exercise is even more beneficial than exercise that's indoors. Yeah. Another, and, and you're right, There are a, there's a lot of research out there on all of these different preventative measures that are really great. I think one challenge that we have kind of seen is getting people to adhere
0: yes. <laughs> to yeah. some
1: of the guidelines. Uh, and so, it, and you know, there may be some people out there that the idea of going to the gym and exercising sounds really not fun and they're not going to do it, but walking in the park, Maybe that's something that they will do. Um, and so by no means is nature kind of the be-all end-all of anyone's healthy lifestyle, but it's one tool that hopefully people can have in their tool belts. And, you know, hopefully our lab and some of the people that we're working li- with will do some research to understand if it's something that can be in the tool belt for older adults for healthy aging.
0: Yeah, yeah. Green exercise is a term I've not heard before. I like that. Yeah. I
1: should have defined <laughs> it. Yeah. That's just basically exercise that's outdoors. Yeah. Yeah,
0: And I think that would resonate with a lot of people. And I'm one of those people. Joyful movement outside because like like going back to everything we've talked about, we can breathe fresh air. We can, I don't know, enjoy the sunshine and, and get away from all of these distractions that we have around us.
1: Yeah, it is really hard to find people that say that they dislike being outside.
0: Yes. Uh, yes, that is very true, especially where we live.
1: Yeah, it is. It's, it is hard, isn't it, to motivate yourself to go to the gym when you live in Colorado. It's yes. It's so nice out all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'd rather go trail running than running on a treadmill, that's for sure. Some of the other things, going back to what you were saying with older adults, that I got to thinking about is... We've talked here at the center, we had a webinar series a couple years ago about what people can do in younger life, midlife, to kind of stimulate healthier aging for when they get older, and um, one of the big topics, themes that came out of those conversations were just stress in general, and managing your stress, and Interestingly, like your social circle and and trying to manage the people that you allow to take your energy Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and how much of that and just these de-stressing techniques, getting enough rest, um, getting enough sleep at night, how important that is for healthy aging. And so I wonder, again, taking that conversation, applying it to an outdoors environmental component, what kinds of things you might find.
1: Yeah, I would say especially with when we when we talk about nature as a potential strategy to promote healthy aging, we really do not know a lot or really anything about it. So it could be that there's really no effect. We don't know. Um however, there are no known side effects to going outside and walking around. Um, obviously like depending on what sort of environment that you're in, you may have to be careful if you're going on a big wilderness trip or something like that. Um, so it, you know, I would say if it's something that sounds interesting to you, then it's something to think about incorporating. And we do know We do know at least from the many studies that have been done in younger adults, which typically means people under 35, that um, it improves attentional abilities, it reduces stress. So at least those things should theoretically be happening. Whether or not that later translates to healthier cognitive aging, I think is yet to be seen. But at the very least, in the here and now, it is something that could be kind of incorporated in your toolkit for well-being.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure we've you've touched on it several times, but we're saying this phrase of, we don't know. We don't know. There's no evidence yet. We haven't studied it. So what can you say right now that we do know about nature and its effects on cognition? If you had to do a yeah. bulleted list of what we do know right now.
1: Yes, what we do know um, is that spending time in nature in younger populations increases attentional abilities, it increases cognitive control, um, it reduces both physiological indices of stress and self-reported stress, and it appears to decrease mental negative mental health symptomology. That's what we know right now.
0: Okay, yeah. Nice. So I know when I was doing some prep for this interview, I was reading your your website, your personal website with all your research on it. And you talked a little bit about the nature effect, Mm -hmm. how much time is needed outdoors in order to see the these changes that we're talking about. What do we know in that arena?
1: Again, yeah, very little. That's one of the reasons why we're excited about this potential project at the Spur campus where we'd be collecting these really large quantities of data because then we might be able to get at that question a little bit more. Uh, That being said, I would actually say that probably the vast majority of the studies that have been conducted have been on just people walking around in the park for like less than an hour. Yeah. Right. Uh, So and why? Because that's logistically the easiest for researchers. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) To just take people to the nearby park and have them walk around for an hour as part of the study. Um, But I also think it's kind of convenient because that's probably what's most accessible to most people is to just go to the neighborhood park and walk around for 20, 30 minutes, maybe an hour. Um, So that is what I'll say. That's what we have the most evidence for currently. But the reason for that is that we haven't really done a lot of studies that have systematically examined this over shorter or longer periods of time. There have been a few here or there, but uh, not really kind of the quality of evidence that you would need to be making recommendations like uh, we have for exercise where it's really very specific. Yeah. 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 Another thing that is worth mentioning too, when we're talking about limitations of this work, there was a really great paper that came out this fall uh, from some researchers at the University of Vermont that found that the majority of this research has also been done specifically on Western uh, populations in Western countries and specifically, even more, on white, white people. <laughs> yep, white, highly educated uh, industrialize. Yeah. So it's just, and that's a huge limitation of this yes. work too. Um, it's really like we can only say things about a very specific segment of the population. Um, and honestly, it's just kind of at this point, you know, in 2023 in science and social sciences, it's kind of unacceptable <laughs> how limited our scope has been in this work. So that's something that I think really needs to be addressed. Yeah. in future work, um, in order to really, truly understand yes. if nature is beneficial to everyone or just a really specific subset of the population.
0: Yeah. It's pervasive in every discipline and every researcher that I talk to. And not only that, but I think because researchers are often in universities, there's an age skew. Mm-hmm. Usually they're studying college students, like you you've mentioned for some of the studies you've looked at, um, Sex differences, don't know a lot about that. Men versus women. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many drugs do we have developed that were only studied with how they physiologically work in a man? Yep. (laughs) Not even considering hormonal influences of women, Um, And then you think about ethnicity and race and all these different layers of diversity that are are just not being represented. And I'm with you. It's 2023. Why are we still doing that? Yeah.
1: So (laughs) there should be like a pretty large asterisk on when you ask me, what do we what do we know currently about nature and human health? That's a big asterisk, I think, on what we know. You know, we know that it improves attention, stress, all those things that we that we just talked about. But there should be kind of the subtext of in these white college students that we're primarily studying. Um, and we really need to expand that out quite a bit. Yes.
0: Yeah. I. It takes me back to where we started this conversation with indigenous knowledge. I, I feel like it, you know, you're setting out, you want to do these studies and like these people who are actively presently going out into nature, studying them here and now. But I, I bet there's so much value in just sitting there and doing like some kind of literary analysis of like looking mm-hmm. through all the texts from indigenous knowledge that we've gathered over centuries and what has already been found. And what, if we're talking about representation and diversity, I bet there's a wealth of information
1: there. Yes, I would highly recommend to anyone listening to read Robin Wall-Kimmer's Breeding Sweetgrass book, which is a fantastic book. Um that kind of touches on some of these topics.
0: Yeah, I loved that book. It was very touching. Mm -hmm. um, And one of those books that makes you feel really connected and grateful for the planet that we get to live on.
1: Yeah, it's a really beautiful book. And um, I also, too, want to point to, there was a new Center for um, Indigenous Land Healing that just started up, I believe, at the University of Washington. And I'm really excited to see what comes from that and some of the research and um and some of the things that that come from that.
0: So I wonder if there's something like tangible that you can list list out for listeners to walk away with in terms of Sarah Latemplio's recommendations for being outside. <laughs> what would you say if somebody asked you those?
1: That yeah, that's a tall order. <laughs> Yeah, I would say what I would say is if it feels right to you, uh, you should consider perhaps taking some of your exercise activities outdoors. Obviously, make sure the, the long time ago, former wilderness educator in me just wants to remind people to be safe when they're outdoors and make sure that they've planned ahead and prepared and brought snacks and water and things like that if you are going for a hike. But I think it is safe to say that spending time outside, whether it's in a national park or in the park in your backyard, is something that you could incorporate into your wellness practice, whether daily, weekly, whatever.
0: Yeah. Those are great recommendations. I want to definitely make sure we get to this last question because this is our brand new standing question for our brand new season three. You're our first episode of this season. No pressure. No pressure whatsoever. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering... Can you identify a major challenge in your field that you believe must be met in order to realize real increases in health span or healthy aging?
1: Yeah, I would say, honestly, for the nature human health research, I think the biggest, I don't know, hurdle that we have to get over, we already talked about a little bit, which is that we're only researching this on a really narrow subset of the population. And I think if we really want to say um, even beyond, you know, we talked about race and, uh, ethnicity and sex differences and gender differences, even with the aging research, we, we've really only explored the nature effects mostly in kind of these young white college students. And I think that in order to, um, maybe see what the highest benefits are or to just get the most out of this. We really need to be expanding our scope um, both in terms of different populations that we are accessing and just different stages of the lifespan that we're accessing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We even talk about in healthy aging that the term older adults is even kind of exclusionary Mm -hmm. because we usually use it to refer to people who are 65 and older. But as medicine advances and like these days, we're living well towards 100 sometimes. Mm -hmm. And so we almost need another category of like the older, older adults (laughs) and how these things that you're like, how does nature affect someone who's 92 years old? You know?
1: Yeah. There's also very little understanding of adults that are in middle age Mm -hmm. who are in their late thirties, forties, fifties. Um, and I think increasingly we're also understanding that those are important years to, age healthily. You should be doing stuff now during that time.
0: Yes. That should be also added to your Sarah LaTemplio's recommendations is the things you do throughout your life will affect you when you get older.
1: (laughs) Things you do now matter. Yes. That feels safe to say.
0: Well, okay. Anything else before we close that you definitely want to make sure we include? Do you have a lab website?
1: I do have a lab website. We are called the RAIN Lab, Restoring Attention and Affect in Nature. So that's R-A-A-I-N. Nice. At CSU. Um, so I can <laughs> hopefully link that. Yeah. people will be able to find it. But yes, there is some more information about if people are interested in working in the lab, if people eventually, yes, there will be information about studies that are up and running that people can participate in.
0: Um, Well, Sarah, thank you for being here and being our first season three guest. I know.
1: Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah,
0: as someone who loves being outdoors, I was looking forward to this conversation for many, many weeks. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.